Hello and welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Today I'm joined by Daryl Fernandez, head of product technology at TIAA. Daryl has many years of experience in driving innovation and leading digital transformations. At TIAA, he oversees the strategic design, delivery, and implementation of adaptive, personalized financial solutions for TIAA's customers and associates. Daryl also successfully initiated an IT product model focused on creating sustainable outcomes across all business platforms and establishing engineering as a foundational discipline for TIAA technologists. Daryl has a world-class approach for turning big ideas quickly into practice, and I'm constantly amazed at the pace with which he drives organizational improvement with a focus on customer outcomes and mission. This is a truly exemplary story of product thinking, agility at scale, customer outcomes, and flow. So listen on to learn more. Daryl, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for joining us on the Project to Product podcast. You and I have been, I don't know how many years we've actually been having these kinds of conversations. It's great to have one publicly in front of everyone right now because I've learned so much from you over the years in terms of applying all these practices that, that we've been doing at, at scale, right? The practice of agility, of the shift from project to product, of flow. And before we start and we, before we get into some of your background, I'd just love for you to tell us... You know, a bit about this, the scale of TIA. You're head of product technology, and just tell us a little bit about, first of all, the, the kind of scale that you work with, and also and what TIA does. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mick. Really appreciate coming on here and, and sharing some of our experiences. Here at TIA, we manage $1.4 trillion of assets. About 6 million participants rely on us for retirement income. We're the third largest institutional record keeper for retirement plans in the industry. And we're really focused on how we bring our brand digital. And and the background here is we're a mission-based organization. And our goal really is to be the change by delivering lifetime income for all with investments that build a better world. We do that through leading with lifetime income, delighting our clients, and strengthening how we operate. And all of the principles that you and I have talked about over the years, Mick, and it all starts with strengthening how we operate. How do we really get better at the fundamentals? We're a technology company. Financial services is a technology industry. And if we can continue to improve how we deliver technology, the ability to delight our customers, the ability to deliver on lifetime income gets so much better so much more quickly as we improve on that strength and how we operate. And that's really what it's all about. You know, we, we are mission-based. We deliver for our participants. That's why we exist. And uh, it's so exciting to be part of an organization that has such a deep connection to its customers. Yeah, and I'm just, I've always been blown away, again, at the number of customers, right? Talking about 6 million participants, the, the 1.4 trillion in assets under management for anyone who hasn't uh, checked the, the size of the world GDP recently. That's, world GDP is under 100 trillion, so we're talking about over a percent of world GDP that you're actually managing for, for 6 million people. And, of course, it, with the, the kind of innovation that's needed in order to support the, the growing expectations of, of that size of a customer base. So, before we dig into how you've been doing that at TIA and how you've been supporting teams, the organizational design, the shift to, to product, the, the scaling of agility. I'd just love us, for us to rewind a, a bit in your career and tell us, tell us how you got here, uh, sorry, where you started. And I think, again, one of the most fascinating things about your learnings and, and what you continue to, just, to teach me uh, 
has to do with with how long you've actually been practicing agile. I, I, I you're one of the few people who I know who still remembers what Hudson is. It's not just Jenkins. It was actually there was actually Hudson at one point. So so why don't you take us back there into the back into the awesome. 90s? <laughs> awesome. So yeah, I did it to your reference. My, my first agile experience was with a with a new company back in the 90s, uh, Sapient, who was bringing to market a co-development process where business people and technology people along with consultants would get together in one place and work together, starting with these funny daily standups that we talked about, uh, what we were doing that day and, and what we needed help with and what we did yesterday and, and really stayed connected in a very different way. And, you know, in 1995, that was pretty revolutionary. And we delivered a, a really robust Salesforce automation product in about seven months through that delivery process. And it really changed the game for me personally. I you know, I'd done COBOL development, I had built record keeping systems before that, but you know, it was a real game changer in how to think about delivering business value when you're standing side by side every morning with your business partner, really going toe to toe on what was important and how you needed to focus on that day. And it was a great learning opportunity. And I've carried that with me since. And, and you know, from that experience in 1995 into the early 2000s, where we uh, we took on some bigger experimentation, and that's where we got into Hudson and, and how could we automate some of our integration and how could we automate breaking of the build and putting some test cases in there and really getting smarter about where automation played in this whole process, because up until then, it, it was still very manual when it came to those kind of things for us and, and really got some deep experience in that. And as we moved away on from that and really started to scale at an enterprise level, really learning about how to instrument things and, and how, how to make teams work together differently and what it really took to look at interdependencies across agile teams and how important the data became and understanding different parts that people were working on and, and that born uh, products and, and how do we think about products and intersections of products and interdependencies of products for us, which which led me to, to you know, about four years ago, joining TIA and bringing a lot of that knowledge to TIA in, in, in installing here the IT product model, which has gone so far to really drive five key accountabilities for us, right? It's about your business roadmap, your technical roadmap, your total cost of ownership, your product stability, and your and your governance model. And those five accountabilities that any IT product manager really needs to think through and have it designed for. They don't all have to be the same. We, we have quite a bit of flexibility, but we have to have an answer for those five things in order to run a complete product and really think about how an IT product fits in market and, and really understand what it means to us as a company. And, and that to us was a really big part of the journey here at TI. And that kind of set the foundation for uh, for what we needed. From there, we were able to, to really start to extend that. Once you have that total cost of ownership, once you have that stability in those roadmaps, you can start to really look at how do OKRs fit in and how can you measure success? And how do you understand the business value of the different things that, that you're investing in and the different features and the different capabilities and what they bring to the market either to maintain competitiveness or to differentiate and what do those investments need to look like. So about a year ago, a little over, maybe maybe almost two years ago now, we started to really build out the OKR construct for our, for our organization and really start to align those OKRs with the product teams so that we could we could really focus people on delivering customer value instead of just a feature backlog. Because feature backlogs are great, but when you can start to really connect that to that delight the customer or that lifetime income outcome 
that was not a pun, um, <laughs> but connected to that lifetime income as an outcome, um, it, it becomes really valuable. And, and uh, people people's connectivity to their work and their engagement to their work grows so much when you can make those kind of real connections to, to the customer. So we've, we've been spending a lot of time there. What we've done as, as we've kind of come out of that phase and entered a full portfolio safe phase, it's really allowed us to, to turn a lot of that construct a little bit differently, where we now have, you know, four portfolios running about 35 arts with about 3,000 people in 300 teams. So it's a pretty big implementation that we're running now in a, in a uh, portfolio safe model. Not quite enterprise, but it's portfolio safe. And uh, we're really starting to see the fruits of that. We, we've now been able to start to swing capacity to the arts that, that need extended capacity. We can measure backlogs and understand where we have constraints. And we can be very transparent with our business partners as a uh, as we look at those issues and work through those challenges in order to continue to focus on and grow the business. That's amazing. And I think, you know, just going back to one of the first things that you said is I think a lot of us have some experiences of feeling what's like when people are engaged with a mission, when you've got developers connected to the business partners, to the customers. You know, as you mentioned, it was, it was standing in the early days toe-to-toe, right? I know uh, I've worked with others who've grown to be senior technology leaders who uh, you know, let's say in the banking industry, they, they, they had their start in technology on the trading floor, right? Where there was that immediate connectivity, that palpable sense of, of delivering value in the next tweak to the algorithm that you're doing and, and that level of agility. So I think what's, what's so impressive about what you're doing at TIA is you're trying to scale that same feeling that you had, that I had, that I think a lot of us starting in technology had of that direct connectivity to the customer, to the outcome, to the, to the business. Yeah, you know, we have a luxury at TIA, and, and I think this is a really important part. Because we're mission driven, our connection to the customer is so real because if we save a dollar by doing something with technology, that dollar goes right to our customer. That's how it works here. And and so it's so much easier for me as a leader to connect the result to the outcome for our participants in in that lifetime income story. It's, It's just it's a real luxury that we have that, that I think uh, a lot of companies don't, and you have to manufacture that as a leader. Yeah. Um, I, I just have a, I have a little bit of an easier time with that here than a lot of people do. Yeah. So, and so you're finding that this makes it easier to relate. Well, actually, let's talk about the, you know, your five accountabilities, right? So are you, how do you actually inject that? You've, I think I get what you're saying. You've got that mission-driven mentality where, where every single person in TIA can connect to. But you still need to organize that in, into a com- very complex in a very complex portfolio, right? The yep. thirty-five arts, and that's not even all of it. So you're somehow translating that mission into the the business roadmap, the technology roadmap. So take us a bit of through how you think about that, where you kind of how you've evolved it over time, and, and where you are today. Yeah, it, it, it's it's very much capability driven, right? So we organize the arts and we organize the IT products around capabilities, so that we can keep keep something in a boundary way that we can kind of put a box around, right? And, and th- those capabilities with APIs and other, and other advancements here, those capabilities are very extensible, but we really try to look at money movement as a capability, onboarding as a capability, implementation as a capability, right? Those are all critical ca- capabilities in the, in-, in the institutional retirement business. And if we can put a box around those, then we can actually mark ourselves to the marketplace. We know how long those things take in the industry. We, we know what kind of 
um, answers there are that are out there, we, we can really evaluate ourselves at that capability level. And I think the granularity that we can get to both at the, at that kind of art level and then within the teams is really fantastic because then we can really understand where we need to drive either linear growth or exponential growth. If we're way off market in an area, then we know we have to do some exponential growth. We can look at the data and see, is it because we've got too much technical debt? Is it because some other factors in play or the, or the marketplace just outran us and we need to, and we need to do some re-envisioning? We can see that and, and we can really react to that and respond to that in a way, both with the IT group, but more importantly, with our business partners, we can share that insight with them. We can have those conversations and we can structure the path forward, that business and IT roadmap that tells us, you know, the, the right way to go based on where we are. Everything doesn't need an exponential roadmap all right. the time. Linear improvement is fantastic in a lot of the things we do. It's just really important to understand where that linear improvement is necessary versus where we need exponential. Yeah, so but that's what's so interesting, Daryl, is that you're there today, and I think a lot of the people I, I know I work with, a lot of our listeners are still looking at, okay, we know we need to shift from project to product, we know we need to understand what our capabilities are, what the portfolio is, but there's this, there, I see these long periods of analysis paralysis in terms of identifying that, and what's the role of the APIs versus how do I slice and dice it vertically and horizontally, is it, around, you know, is it for my associates and participants' systems of engagement, is it but what we have multiple, is it around mobile versus web, all, all those sorts of things. So somehow you're You've now gone through that. You've actually got your portfolio. You've got this. I love this point at which seeing an organization get to this point where it's like, well, maybe we don't need everything to have exponential growth. Here's where we sustain, right? Here's where we'll actually sunset some, and here's where we need to reallocate the bulk of our investments for participants to get to get the best outcomes, the best income outcomes. I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> so how how did you get there? Because you didn't get there overnight. And again, I think. Maybe you'd be surprised, maybe not, in terms of how long people get stuck in this phase of, of actually getting that, that business and technology view on what their portfolio is, how that marks the product value streams, how those are supported by art. So how, how did you get here? Yeah, so, so you know, I, I, I don't know that there was a big strategy that said, we're going to lay this out and this is how we're going to get there. I, I, think, uh, I think it was Lou Gerstner, I could be wrong, who said, how do you eat an elephant? Yeah. One bite at a time, right? So, so you got to start... And you just got to start by taking the first step and you got to start with one product and you got to start measuring it and you got to start understanding it and you got to start looking beyond one team. So, so I, my role here is product technology, but I have a partner who runs our channel technology, all of our interfaces, if you will. Those two teams like have to work that, or that's the organizational construct. There's another partner that runs a lot of our data assets, right? But, but, that's that's the organizational construct. What we've done within the construct of our arts is built cross-functional arts. So it's not about one organization aligning this way. It's about multiple organizations aligning this way so we can take those steps together. So when the platform team is building an API, the channel team is consuming an API, the data team is delivering data, they're doing that in, in one art instead of organizational silos trying to do that. And that's been a huge part of our pivot is that ability to work across the organizational construct horizontally and really incent people through the OKRs and, and just through you know good business value to really work together to get to the optimal outcome. Are we perfect? No. But, but are we making really strong progress towards that? Absolutely. Do I feel really good about the path we're on and, and the future? 
Absolutely. I think we've done a lot of heavy lifting and the teams are really starting to come together and we see that through the data. Yeah, exactly. And what struck me is that you have done it more quickly and more efficiently in terms of in terms of both the starting point, the, the starting to eat the elephant, and where you are today. And I think that I just want to actually, because I, I noted it, I'm going to put it somewhere up on my wall. But this is, you know, you, once again, you said something so concisely, which is that, you know, start with one product, measure, and then look look beyond the one team, right? And then that that's just a flywheel that, that starts moving, right? And then you, right. You, you didn't bring in OKRs at the start. You just realized, okay, well, to scale some of this, uh, we can leverage this this particular tool of OKRs. So, And, and, and I'll give due credit where it's due. OKRs was a push... It, through one of our conversations, where really, you really pushed me to evaluate the benefit that they could have in our ecosystem, and, it, and it's been a fantastic push, and it's really allowed us to change the business engagement dialogue by, huh. by really moving away from the date or the or are you on time, are you on budget, from that to are we delivering the outcome we need, and and whether the feature was even necessary to deliver the outcome we need, and can we question that, and can we push on that, and really think differently to get to that outcome as effectively as possible. Okay, well, I'm glad I, I didn't realize. That. I'm glad I, glad I got to influence you a little bit that way with the OKRs, but but I actually feel like I've. I've uh... For all the people deploying OKRs at these scales, again, they've, some things have gone wrong, right? They they end up going back to tracking activities, right? That's one of the biggest pitfalls in terms of people I talked to, let's say a year or two ago, who had got them excited about connecting the notion of of measuring flow and the shift to product uh, and OKRs and how these things can be so constructive. But as things have gone from you know, let's say a small group of of Inspired individuals who are test trying it out, and the small to, things devolve into measure, going back to measuring these activities, right? Not connecting to outcomes. So, any any guidance of or any sort of key learnings or tips in terms of how you actually did? And by the way, I've I've noticed this with TIA in, in our conversations and in, with others, uh, is that you actually have managed to keep the spirit of the OKRs. And again, going back to that connection to the mission and the outcome. So, any tips on on how to approach that? Yeah, I, I think we used them as a complementary device. So we didn't say uh, these things are going away and these new things are coming, right? We, we use the OKR as a complementary. It was an organizing principle. Um, so, so it became substantial in our overall way that we think about things, but we didn't just throw everything else out at the same time because people weren't, you know, it's, it's a really change management one-on-one. People can't connect to the new thing until they can see it. So they're unwilling to let go of the old thing. Right. Yeah. So, so you have to get far enough with OKRs that people can start to appreciate what they are before you start to stop focusing on some of the old things. So there was a period right. that we had to do both and it was hard and, and it was manually intensive because you had to convert to some of the old language and some of the old thinking in order to keep those those that part of the machine running. But, but I think when you try to just shut that piece off cold, and assume people can can move to the new, it becomes it becomes a high risk situation. And we we've had the ability here, the luxury here of being able to do that transition over a little bit of time. As I said, you know, eighteen months, almost two years. So we were we had the the ability to kind of do that in parallel a little bit, and we had the right buy in from our senior business partners, especially in the EPMO, where we embraced them. Mm-hmm brought them to the problem set with us, made OKRs their their device, and, and really let them run with it with influence from IT. And that was a huge, a huge step forward for us because it wasn't coming from IT into the business at that point. It was coming from the organizing model of the business 
changing the way we were going to go about business and business prioritization. Okay, so you actually, that's fascinating. So you did have the EPMO, and I've seen this elsewhere as well, embrace OKRs as a way, again, of not pushing down dates, but of tracking two outcomes, which in the end, Correct. the PMO, the PMO, that's exactly what they're after. They, they, you know, they don't want to be, be pushing down dates, they're going to be missed anyway. So D- Dates are a proxy metric, and if you really want to focus on dates, you have to be really careful of the sustainability of the product you get. If all you care about is dates, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, but then there's still a gap, and I'll never forget as I've meant when when you told me so I was, I was meant. I think we were talking about the shift to product and flow metrics, and and I think it was maybe our very one of our earliest conversations about OKRs, and we were also talking about safe and scaling agility. And you said this this thing I, privately to me, which I'll not say publicly. <laughs> was like Mick, the problem with you, the problem with Dean, Dean. I hope I, if you're listening, I, th- I think this is a going to turn into a positive story. Is that <laughs> You think that people are are innately focused on outcomes, but we actually have to put these systems in place to help them focus on outcomes, and and that really struck with me, right? Is is that we have to put in place the right kind of you mentioned the word incentive, the right kind of incentive structure, the right kind of communication, the right kind of system that doesn't completely overload people in, in terms of what they should be focusing on. I think that's a Really interesting point you made when you're switching from one system to the other, right? That that in itself can overload people. Shifting from normal waterfall methodologies to agile and scaled agile methodologies, right? Th- those in itself, we've seen that raise flow load, work in progress in the organization to the point where people are not not getting enough done. So innate in all of in the way you've been approaching all of this is is getting people focused on those on those outcomes. So is it? I guess now you're saying it's both technology connected up with the EPMO. Correct. Any any other secret sauce you can share with others? Well, you know, we we had phenomenal pockets where it was connected into the actual business functions as well. So we had some really great use cases to lean on. We had one that was going on for about two years before we started the broad journey that we could point to and to demonstrate real success. We had a problem that had been in our ecosystem for many years. We brought a team together, business and IT. We used Essential Safe at the time. We used outcome-based planning. We WSGIFT it, and, and uh, the team that that led it really created a model that we could point to and say, "When we do this, we get success." So we could build trust, right? A lot of this is about trust and transparency, Mick. And so we we had a trust foundation that we could lean on with some evidence. To, to kind of give people reason to try, right? So, so that's where you have to start with one product. You have to start with one team. You have to start and build enough foundation to get people enough evidence to take that next bigger step. Because this is all about risk management. And at the end of the day, you're asking people to, to take a risk with you to change the way we think about a problem. And if you can't manage their risk or help them understand the risk that they're taking, it's a pretty big leap. And and for those of us on the IT side of the house, we can clearly see it because we've lived it for so long. But for others who who maybe haven't been as close to it, it's it's something that you need to help them adjust their risk tolerance so that they can take that risk with you. Right. And so and this is this is this has been fascinating to me, right? On this podcast I did actually ask Dean like why do you think people, you know, get into some failure modes with with scale as a framework? And where some of the most common failure modes are are just over focusing on the ceremonies, which again was not the intent. That was not my intent either. Is is not focusing on outcomes, but somehow organizations, I think, where there isn't that kind of embracing of the trust and then the psychological safety to try these new things, they end up focusing on just on the details, on the mechanics. Well, well, because it's it, it's measurable and it's yep. real and it's tangible, right? And people want to be able to touch it. 
right? Yeah. And so what can, you can touch a date. Did you have the ceremony when you said you were going to yeah. have the ceremony? Did you prioritize the stories that you said you were going to prioritize? Did, did the PI open and close with the appropriate pieces and partners at the table? So, so you can, those are all simple things to measure, but they don't necessarily lead to outcomes. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> the outcomes are in the content. The outcomes are in the stories. The outcome is in is in the flow. And until you can until you can measure those pieces and, and really that's been where we've been really making some headway over the last year here is between the stories and, and being able to take epics and, and groom them and get the stories that are tangible and then use flow to, to measure how we're doing it at uh, executing on them. That's been really a, a huge, a huge change for us in being able to be that transparent about, wait a second, business partners, we've got too much whip. Like, yeah. like, and this is, this is what that means. And this is why it's detrimental to the overall success of the PI. And this is why we need to back off here. This is why we need to look there. You know, so that's that as well as technical debt and being able to be transparent about technical debt and, and the, how that can slow down a team, whether it's through production stability issues, whether it's through defect remediation, uh, whether it's just through work that you have to do to, to keep alive you know, older legacy capabilities, you know, that transparency that you can start to get is, is so important when you're trying to ask others to take a risk with you and build trust with them. And that's been a really good device for us at a team level um, as we go forward and, and really something that I, I think is going to be in, in this year, in, in 2022, that's going to be a really seminal moment for us is really getting those flow metrics out to all of our key partners at a team level. I think one of the dangers here and one of the risks that I'm very attuned to is not comparing teams because of their yeah. flow, right? One, one team's flow is not another team's flow because one team's problem is not another team's problem. And I think there's a, another tendency to use it as a comparator. And, and that's something that we're going to have to work really hard to resist in, in order to make sure we're using flow as intended. PI over PI, iteration over iteration, sprint over sprint improvement within the team, but not necessarily focused on the team A versus team yeah. B uh, kind of construct. You know, a, a mainframe team working on problem A versus a front end team working on problem B in Java. Two very different problem sets. Their velocity is going to be different. Their flow load is going to be different. Uh, we just have to pay, pay a lot of attention to that so we don't get caught up. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, it's amazing that you're you're at that stop where that, that's not becoming a real challenge to understand the organization. This is apples and oranges, right? That this is, we want to look at these flow metrics and, and tailor them to the part of the portfolio. And the flow distribution will be different if it's mainframe backend systems versus something that needs to a B test very quickly and because of you know it needs to be an innovative web or mobile yeah, experience. Because so. the marketplace demands it. Yeah, exactly. So but then Daryl again you, you say this so so simply and concisely and and it's amazing. But you I think I wanna again you've what you've done is establish this and going back to when you started smaller, this flywheel, right? And I think that's what so many are looking to establish where initially, again, basically starting to create the first arts, the first agile teams and making sure that they've actually, you know, their outcomes are measured, looking at their dependencies, looking beyond the team. How, I think one of the biggest challenges for people who have a sense, you know, they think that they, you know, they have a clear sense of what to do, and you just kind of described what to do, in terms of bringing that organizational support into it, because it's, in the end, I think it's all about the crux is operationalizing at a business level what you just described. And okay. I think one of the main success patterns I've seen is, is actually creating that flywheel from the start, from the very, you know, the, the very first team or set of teams, the very first product. 
So can you tell us how you brought, because at one point you brought the EPMO in, right? Yep. Uh, and you brought in the, the bit and you had to educate, everyone has to educate some business partners at some point is that it's not, we'll get you more over the course of the fiscal year if we focus on some tech there, there's adding some APIs, not less, even though initially you'll get less. So hints and suggestions on how, how and when to bring, the, bring the, the business counterparts in at the early stages of that flywheel. Yeah, so, so I can't speak to every company, right? Because every company is different persona-wise, marketplace-wise, and everything else. I think there are more natural places to start than others. I think most marketing organizations are much more attuned to test and learn, mm. much more attuned to iterative approaches. So if you have a MarTech marketing technology project that's on your radar, that may be a good place to start. That That's one option. If you have a situation where you've got a marketplace crisis, right? You've got a product in market that needs immediate attention that the whole business is focused on. Yeah. That's another, you know, another place to, to rally business, IT, operations, all the necessary ingredients and say, look, we've been at this problem for X amount of time. We're clearly not making the progress we need to make. We have to make a change. Here's an opportunity and take advantage of that crisis, right? So, so I think it's all about the situation that a given organization's in and what the opportunity set that presents itself with. I think as an IT leader, it's really important to have an inventory of what are the possible products, what are the possible areas, what are the possible opportunities, so that when the market opens for that, whether it's the marketing organization, whether it's a product organization or a distribution function or, or, or what have you, that you don't have to create everything on the fly. You need to, you know, I, I was a, a Boy Scout in my younger days. You have to be prepared. You have to be ready for that moment so that you're not trying to create the artifacts. You're not trying to justify. You have to have had some initial conversations with the right people to kind of set the tone for where you're going strategically so that everything isn't new in the crisis moment, in the opportunity moment, whatever, whichever kind of end of the spectrum you're on, and, and be, be at the ready to pounce on that first one. And even if you've got some smaller things going on within the IT function, make sure they're going on in an area that, that has an opportunity to accelerate like that, right? And, and, and there is some thoughtfulness that goes into that, and there is some landscape kind of observing that you have to do because you can't do it all at once and and you know you'll drive yourself into the ground if you try to do it all at once you have to pick your spots but but do it thoughtfully with where you think those opportunities might come and where you think you'll have a willing partner to kind of engage with you the, uh, the luxury i've had throughout the course of my career is I've had, back to 1995, I was working with the distribution organization doing the Salesforce automation, and one of the one of the people who ran distribution was the primary partner, right? And they knew we had to do something different. Same thing when we were doing the automation in the early 2000s. It, it was a, an innovation portfolio that we were driving, and so everybody was tuned into, we have to be different, we have to do things differently, we have to be quick. So I had... I had the luxury in both of those moments of, of having business partners who were as incented as we were to do things different. As a matter of fact, in the first case, it was driven by the business. The business in 1995 came to us and said, IT, you're too slow. We've got you help. We need to change the way we think about IT. And so that, that was a phenomenal experience. Obviously, reluctant IT organization at first, but uh, a, a really, really great learning opportunity with phenomenal business partners. But it's really finding those business partners who, who understand the need for change and have a business imperative 
to adopt. Yeah, I think that business imperative again the, the the crisis the place where things need to go faster the place where competition is is eating lunch, you know your lunch yeah. i think it's it, those have been catalysts for change so i think that's a great suggestion and, and finding that right partner but then can we go to your point on preparedness so preparedness is in so let's say you are you're, you know to, to another technology leader are you saying like prove out this the product model the okrs the flow metrics and so on within technologies to be ready or so, so I did the product model within technology. You did, no business exactly, partner, yeah. Right, so, so that was to get ready, right? That was the yeah. first, you have to kind of get your IT organization ready to think differently, understand that it's not all about business features. You have to, you have to be a whole person. You have to be a whole IT product leader and look at the total cost of ownership and look at these other factors. Maybe do a market scan on your capability if it's one that, that has... Gartner reviews on it or, or other third-party assessments on that particular capability, they exist. So do your research, do your homework, see what others are doing, compare yourself to the market all within wow. IT, right? So so that was our first step. That's yeah. where we started. So then when the opportunities, when the imperatives started to show up, we had that organizing model in place already and we could take advantage of the business partners who were ready to engage on those other dynamics. That's awesome. I, I think I think there really is something to that. The fact that the, the, the boy, that Boy Scout preparedness, the fact that you were ready to go when there was an opportunity within the business and, and the right kind of partner with who also want to move fast and 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 you know, help with the transformation and drive better outcomes. That's yeah. So I think that's uh, that's that's some some very good advice. Okay, so now we're into that, and you've got sort of the, the you know that first opportunity, whether it's around Martech again, where people are used to moving fast and changing things, yep. or or some kind of other micro crisis. What's kind of next in that flywheel in terms of bringing more? At, at, you know, at that point, once you're starting to prove that out, people are getting interested, right? You are you've been demonstrating some incredible results, measurable results in terms of delivery uh, and outcomes. So, so sort of what's the next step? Yeah, so, so I, I think it comes down to the organization. Where is the organization and its journey? So for us, the next step was OKRs, yeah. right? For us, um, because it was right in the in the planning season cycle that we were starting to ramp this up. Um, some of those opportunities were emerging. People, like the whole business case model, had some questions about the efficacy of the business case model because it was really leading to feature bloat. And so we had an opportunity to really shift the thinking to OKR. So that's that was the opportunity for us. Flow actually followed afterwards. If If I had planned it, I would have probably thought flow came next. I would have thought I could do flow within the IT construct. I can understand flow and I can use that as the next lever to build trust and transparency. But, you know, the opportunity here was establish OKRs and then let flow follow. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's understanding, in my mind, Mick, these are all tools on a tool belt. Yeah. And if you show up with a saw and the job is to frame the house, that's okay because you do have to cut some wood. But if you don't have a hammer, it's going to be a long day. And so if, if the opportunity calls for a hammer, get out the hammer and, and, and use the hammer today. And so I think, you know, understanding the, the four or five pieces that have to come together with the business connection with OKR, the product model and the governance that goes with that and the cadence that that establishes. The flow metrics as the fundamental believer. The automation, whether it's BDD, whether it's TDD, whether it's CICD, all that automation has to, and we haven't even talked about that, but all that automation has to play a key role here yeah. as well if you're really trying to drive efficiency. And then there's a whole talent piece to this, right? Do you have, do you have, have you incented people? Have you given them the tools to learn and to grow 
into these skills that are necessary. So those are kind of the four tools that you're kind of always on on the job site real time, applying one more than another at any one point in time, depending on what you have available to you and what the situation calls for. Yeah, and like I said, what's the appetite? Like, if you've got a champion right. at EPMO, go with OKRs first, right? That's right. You, you'll get that connective <laughs> tissue in place, and then and then do flow next. Could not agree more. You know, we we had a great team here who who did a whole bunch of work on what we call the High Velocity Engineering Academy, and it was a co-developed suite of self-based training that we launched. And it's been, you know, the uptake on that has been phenomenal. But we were able to do that while we were doing all everything else. And again, is it everything we need? No. But, but is it just so good for the engagement of the associates and for everybody to learn from each other? It, it's been a, a great thing for us to really leverage. And, you know, again, we haven't talked about that either. We haven't talked about a bunch of things. But, uh, but to me, it's all just, to your point, what's the appetite? And there's things that you can do and stand up when the appetite's not there. But be ready when the appetite is there to, to go for it. Yeah, so I want to get into those topics in a moment. But, but before, I have seen this other pitfall where... You know, I think you're, you're quite familiar with it because our, our, our mutual colleague, Dave West, he's taught us both quite a bit. And you, you were telling me, Daryl, about Scrum Studio, right? Is that you end up making this pocket and there, there are various ways of doing this through Greenfield's projects, through Skunk Works, through bimodal IT, even where there's this pocket of, of a subset of the organization going fast and that does not have the right effect on the organization because it's, it's just a non-scalable pocket, basically. So how you avoid, and I've seen that as a pitfall, right? Where be, you, know, you need to start small, you need to start with that one product and the rest, but with an eye of scaling this to the organization and operationalizing it as, as a whole, not as we're gonna go fast here and everything's gonna be terrible, as, or as it was, <laughs> uh, status quo everywhere else. So how did you avoid that? Well, I, I don't think we've been perfect at it, candidly, Mick, and, and we've had false starts and we've had learnings, but I think what we've really tried to do is be transparent with the whole organization that this is a journey we're on together. And, you know, in my all hands, one of the things I talk about frequently, and I'll, I'll hit back to the mission for a second, one of the things I talk about frequently is when we can be more efficient for our customers, the customers get the benefit directly. There's no minimum, there's nobody to, to take a chunk of that, it goes right to our customers. So how can we be more efficient together? And, and by being more efficient together, it's going to take all of us. And some people may be in a different place today, but our journey is going to take all of us to a place that we all get to be better that we all get to be more efficient, we all get to drive more value because that's what we're here to do. I mean, sometimes we get lost in technology thinking about the technology we work on and the and the cool stuff we can do, but but really recentering it back to through the product model, through the, the different metrics that we have, you know, bringing it back to that customer delight and the, and for us that lifetime income is so important that that we can make those connections and I think it takes a lot of leadership and a lot of communication to help bring everybody along. And, and you really have to be thoughtful about how you celebrate what. Yeah. Because people will recognize what you celebrate and, and they will react and respond to what gets celebrated. And, and you really have to be thoughtful about how inclusive you are and the way you think about recognizing success. Because success comes in a lot. In this model, you know, I talked about five different practices. In that model, success can can look very different across the board in each of those through through those five different lenses. Okay, so let's talk about that because I think in the end that that business partnership is is, is key to understand to what is celebrated, is what is incentivized, what is sort of operationalized in in the actual and what motivates the teams. So, uh, how did you approach that? Again, I think you've you've done an amazing job connecting it 
in terms of the, the you know customer delight or or participant delight, but not alienating technology because of course what a lot of us have seen is it's it's in that bi- that business if that business partnership is only celebrating things that are kind of just at the very surface of the user experience, then you know we never modernize our platforms. We never do yeah. the do the core work that needs to happen to create a an innovate a platform for innovation. So, how do you strike that balance, Daryl? Yeah, I, I think the, the, that's where that strengthening how we operate becomes so important as one of our pillars as an organization, right? Because a lot of the work that doesn't show up on the glass yeah. really kind of kind of sustains that strength in how we operate. And making that connection and drawing that into the equation is really important as one of our key sets of outcomes. And being able to connect people with that. Everybody wants to to make sure what shows up at the glass is competitive yeah. and interesting and engaging and delights our customers. Um, and everybody wants to make sure our returns are as as fantastic as they can be, so we can deliver that lifetime income. But a lot of what we do, all the way you know, all the way through our infrastructure teams, our cyber teams, everyone is about strengthening how we operate. And, and I think it's so important that, that we use these pillars to connect people to our mission. And I think our, you know, our executive teams have done such a phenomenal job of laying these pillars out to be a place where every associate connect them. I I can also tell you one other thing that's really unique to us is we have a really strong partnership with our operations teams, our our business operations teams. Proximity-wise, they're very close organizationally with us. So when we started to stand these arts up, we leaned into our business operations team. and, And because we have a strong, trusted relationship, we could pull business people into those arts pretty quickly and we had a really receptive audience and again sometimes it's better to be lucky than good mick and it, you know in this case I, I we really lucked out in having a really strong advocate in our operations team because they know the more technology can do to, to automate the better their life gets right so yeah. they they are happy to partner with us they are a very willing participant to take that risk with us and find a way to engage at the at the scrum team at the kanban team at the art, at the portfolio level with us to really continually derive that future state. Yeah, and that's another interesting one I've noticed as well in terms of champions who can help pull things ahead. And of course, like you said, different different situations in different organizations, but that there's that EPMO pull that you right. saw, right? The operations one is another one seen frequently because of course, whether they're, they're and, and we're not talking about technology operations here, but of course, business operations, Correct. back office and, and the rest, but they've been doing lean and optimization for their whole career. So they, they, they get exactly what we're on about here. So That's right. And, yeah. and, and you know, software has been such a dark art yeah. to so many of these people for so exactly. long. The fact that we're coming forward with things like flow metrics and things like clarity of, of a construct like the product model allows them to engage on a, on a set of terms that they understand. Yeah. One of the most important things here that we've done is create a common language Mm-hmm. Right. So so people here at TIA know what an art is. They know an agile re- all the way up to our executive committee. They know what an agile release train is. Right. They know what a release train engineer does and, and create not every one of them, but but several people on the executive committee actually know and are immersed in it at that level. And, and by knowing that and by understanding that, you know, and having that common language, it becomes so much simpler to drive change. Yeah. Right. It, and having that appreciation for it at the senior levels really allows us to drive that change. Yeah, and I think I want to make sure that, that I think that's another such a key factor for the the pace of your success, right? Is that you did 
leadership did embrace. He must have provided some kind of some of the right kind of education in terms of having that common language. And another colleague of mine that's you know said this earlier on the podcast from Lloyd's Bank, Justin Watts, but giving executives who've just you know they might have if they are are more from the business operations side, you know they could have grown up with just learning and optimizing economies of scale. But in the end, what for digital innovation is about the economics of flow. So how, well, when we dig into that, how did you approach flow? How did you, there's something here where, where as you said, that strengthening the way the technology organization operates goes right up to the executive level. Whereas yeah. I think at a lot of other organizations, we see that maybe some of those words are said that we're now a technology company, but it's actually still pushed down in, into the technology organization. It's not owned, that common language, the, the goal setting, the, the operational model is actually not combined between business and technology. So again, you've done something far better here, far more quickly. So yeah, so uh, I'll just once again ask you, how, how did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think when it came to flow, you know, and, and uh, I'll say something that I, uh, I've been known to say in other forums, the opposite of, which is never start, with, I, I've said in the past, never start with the tool. Be, because if, if you're doing a CRM implementation, don't start with the tool, start with your process. Understand your process and then find the right tool to automate what you're trying to do. In the case of flow, I think it was really important for us to start with the tool because the tool brought so much to light in the art of the possible. But by using Viz and, and, and taking advantage of the, the capabilities of Viz, it opened so much for us to be able to quickly start to have different transparency conversations that we haven't been able to have before. It accelerated our ability. And we really started at the, at the small team level. When we started to roll out Viz, it, it was very much, and, and really thinking about flow, it was very much at the small team level. And let it kind of incubate across four or five small teams, working with business partners, learning how to use it, learning what it meant, understanding the value prop. And then once we could do that, then we took a step back and said, okay, now let's look back at the process. Now let's look at where this fits in. Now let's look at how we want to take advantage of it. And, and then then we started to build a plan as to how we were going to go to scale with flow. And as a matter of fact, we've pulled back on our, uh, at, on our flow maturity drive. So we wanted to get to what we've defined with, with your team as maturity level two relatively quickly here in 2022. We looked at the change the team was going through. We looked at the absorption of, of different things that were coming at them. And we said, time out. Let's understand and get really good with the basics. Let's, let's get really solid on maturity level one. A couple groups are ready to go beyond that. That's great. But a mass push to level two probably isn't in our best interest right now. We need to portfolio to stabilize. We need to kind of get candidly through the pandemic a little bit and get people back into seats and, and let some of those things play out. And then we'll revisit that push to level two, maybe in Q3, when some of those things have settled out. But we'll still get a ton of value out of level one. One of the team members who's driving a lot of this for us, um, and he's done a phenomenal job with it, I mean, came up, he came up with the quote, no plan survives contact with the end user, right? Yeah. So, so, so he uses that a lot. And, and once we kind of started to push flow out there and we got all the team, every, every one of those 300 teams is flow instrumented at this point, using it at varying levels, coming into their maturity and coming into their own with it. But every one of those 300 teams is, is measured in flow, but you know, he was one of the ones, along with a, a few other people on the team, who said, "Let's let's put a pause on this before we drive too hard, because the end users are, are absorbing 
and adopting, but we have to give them some time and some space to do it well. So I, I think for us, it was a use the tool, understand the opportunity, take a step back, plan, move forward with the plan and adapt. Yeah, and I, that's what's been amazing to me is just the thoughtfulness with which you've approached this, right? Because I've seen, I'll, I'll give you a picture of the opposite, right? Where an organization instantly goes to scale on, on let's say, you know, trying to go all the flow metrics, then they're made part of, I've actually seen this, right? They're made part of the incentive structure for development teams, which it's feasible to do, but it's also easy to do the wrong way. And then all of a sudden, we'll be looking at the situation and they're now doing all of this. Everyone's trying to reduce their flow time, which is all great. But what we've realized is they haven't actually done one of the early steps of, of making sure all flow items are modeled so they don't have flow distribution. And the, the, what they left out, by the way, most commonly, and this is just empirically true right now that we've seen this across organizations, is tech debt, so debts and risks. Right? So that work is still hidden. Meanwhile, they're incentivizing all the other work. So that, again, I think that thoughtfulness and rigor with which you do this to make sure that you know, before we you know, put every single bell and whistle on, we've actually have flow modeled accurately and and our arts deployed and all of this and and then of course all the other pieces like you said we haven't talked about right all of the technology pieces that are needed right because one of the early things we'll often see is like well these these teams are actually they haven't moved on to the common pipeline to the common CICD right. pipeline and so they <laughs> they really need to do that and, you know one of the things that the team did and we've got this on I think just about all five of the practices maybe our talent strategy could use a little bit more but you know we've got communities of practice that run office hours where people can come and get support, ask questions, give their point of view and, and share their successes. So I think that's been a big part of building community around some of these things, Mick, instead of making everything top down, really empowering the organization to, to embrace it and to share in it and, and to adopt it kind of at their own pace, not purely at their own pace, because we're certainly trying to drive, but giving them the space to do it in their own way is really important. I think you hit on, on the incentive model is a really interesting one. And, and it's one of the things that I think is, a, is something to really think about. How, you know, how do you cheat flow metrics? Mm -hmm. like if, if you're trying to cheat, how do you cheat? The easiest way to cheat is to make your story smaller, because the smaller the story, the faster they go through. I love that. Cheat all you want. Because the smaller the story, the faster they go through, the more business value we deliver, right? So, so we really took a step back and said, if we're gonna if we're gonna look at these metrics, what are the ways that a team might cheat to look successful? And we've looked at is smaller stories going to drive flow? Is is data hygiene going to make your flow look better? Yeah, you know what? If if your data is cleaner, your flow looks better. Well, is that really a bad thing to have to have clean data in in your Jira stories and and in your backlogs? Probably not. So we really tried to look at, you know, if, if you're going to use it as an incentive model, how might people use it and try to gain the system? You know, and in a lot of ways, we've, we've looked at that from different angles and the different angles we look at it, every way that somebody might gain the system is in our benefit, is in our customer's benefit. So go for it. Game away. And then, Daryl, I, I think you know this. I'm not sure, but but uh, and and for our listeners, when I was version point five of the Flow framework, I, I I realized okay, I've got to run this by some of the you know, people who I think have have the most experience in this, and especially the gamification, right? Any metrics, as you say, Daryl will be game. So I called up this uh, gentleman named Daryl Fernandez and said, Daryl, how do you think people will game this? <laughs> and that, that that was the answer. So I think, I, and I think that's that's such an important thing. We you know, gaming for smaller batch sizes is something we want, right? Gaming for hiding information. Is not, and that's where I think 
again, being thoughtful around these incentive structures. Well, if we only are going to have people model defects and, and features, we're not going to get there. We will still be so much hidden. Two of the biggest anchors are going to stay under the water and, yeah. and you're not going to realize you're dragging them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Amazing. So, Okay, Daryl. Any work, and we're, we have to slowly start wrapping up a bit. But anything, anything that's just been amazing. Anything you think we missed? Uh, any big topics that you think you would like to make sure others take away from this as as they're trying to replicate what you've done over the past it, few years? You know, the, the one thing that I don't know that that I've kind of highlighted enough, Mick, and and I think it it always in every situation comes down to the people, and I I just you, you have to you have to think about the organizational dynamics, the people dynamics of what you're driving. And you've got to create a with them for them. There's got to be a what's in it for me. Like what gets better for me as a developer? What gets better for me as a systems analyst? What gets better for me as a scrum master as we go through this process? And if it doesn't get better for me, what what's my, I don't want to use the word incentive because that means something different in, in the way we've been talking about it, but what's my driver for, for helping push this change through. And, and for us, the connection to the mission is certainly a, a big driver, but I think you really have to think about the people. We've had tremendous people on this journey with us here at TIA. I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge some of their efforts here because nobody can do this alone. I certainly haven't done this alone. I, I, I've done very little of it personally. It's It's been about an organization that's been willing to come on a journey and uh, and work together and learn together and take risk together as we go forward. And, and, you know, that talent strategy piece of it and really understanding your, your people dynamics is so important to all of this. And we probably didn't talk enough about that lens, but, but, and, and there's probably more I should be doing on that lens, but, um, but, but being really mindful of that, I think is, is really important because without the people on board, you can have all the tools you want. You're, yeah. you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think, Almost everyone's realizing is that those people, those 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 are the limiting factor, right? Once you've put in place the automation, once you've you've taken away the bottlenecks and so on, our access to talent and our nurturing the talent that we've got is what makes technology successful. So, so how do we? Do? <laughs> What's the well, silver bullet there? We've all learned through this pandemic that yeah. that talent is certainly not a commodity, yeah. right? And 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 we really have to pay attention to that. Yeah, exactly, and and again, I think the way I, you know, I see and I, but and I've seen you, I've seen you doing this over the course of the pandemic, right? Is creating that flywheel that makes a better environment for talent. As again, you, you've kind of operationalized some of the things that that take the burden out of people's day and allow them co- to contribute more to their outcomes. But I think again that it's what you're saying is is so important. It's, you know, one thing is the, the the kind of big picture business outcomes, but relating those to to all of the different roles is not easy. And I think. Th- the, yeah. the more deliberate. So, so is that? I guess. What are you focused? So let's wrap up on that. So, you know, what, what are you focused on yeah. for the months ahead in terms of in terms of the next step and next steps in turning the flywheel? For, for us, it's it's really yeah, the next step in turning the flywheel is really creating an even more tight coupling with the customer outcome. And so really strengthening our OK. So we've, we have OKRs and, and we've done them, but really taking another turn at that crank that's really customer driven. You know, I talked about the length of customer. I talk about uh, lifetime income. Like, do our OKRs, are they so clear that they're going to drive that delight? And do we understand what that delight looks like, feels like when they touch it? That, that for us is probably the, the next big turn of the crank. There's a lot of little turns of the crank of just continuing to operationalize. I talked about getting to maturity level two with flow. 
that to me is a is a is a smaller turn of the crank. But on the big crank, it's really continuing that drive for customer connectivity and, and really bringing the customer into everything we're trying to do. Awesome. That's the th- Daryl. Thank you. This has been this is I think from my view has been been pure gold. So I'll make sure to listen to it a few more times and try to <laughs> operationalize some more of this myself. So. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you so so much for joining. The, the introvert on this end of the call is exhausted. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, good time for us to wrap up. Awesome. Thanks so much, Daryl. Have a great afternoon. We'll talk soon. Thank you to Daryl for taking the time to share his wisdom with us today. For more, follow me on my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MakePlusOne or Project Product. You can reach out to Daryl via LinkedIn. I have a new episode every few weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project Abroad to get the book. And remember that all of the proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.